Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor of Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. In our last program, we went over so many passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church regarding the sacrament of penance. They were pretty much sequential, articles 1485 through 1498. Today, I'll finish up the in brief statements from the Catechism of the Catholic Church regarding the Sacrament of Penance specifically and, and round out with passages from other parts of the Catechism relating to this Sacrament of Healing, this Sacrament of Salvation, this laborious baptism whereby those post-baptismal sins we sadly commit are forgiven. In the Code of Canon Law, the Law of the Church, Canon 959, we read, In the sacrament of penance, the faithful, those are all the baptized, confessing their sins to a legitimate minister, that would be the priest who have the faculties to grant absolution, being sorry for them, if we're not sorry for our sins, it's not a valid confession, and at the same time proposing to reform, with the help of God's grace, that's possible, obtain from God the forgiveness of sins committed after baptism through the absolution imparted by the same minister. And they likewise are reconciled with the church which they have wounded by sinning. Here we can see very clearly a correlation between the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Code of Canon Law. The Code came out in 1983. The Catechism came out in a later date. In order to receive the salvific remedy of the sacrament of penance, the Christian faithful ought to be so disposed that, having reputed the sins committed and having a purpose of amendment, they are converted to God. Canon 987 of the Code of Canon Law, Codex Juris Canonici. The sacrament of penance is a salvific remedy, a remedy of salvation. Here the code speaks to us of a proper disposition. If we do not repute our sins, we are not properly disposed to receive the mercy God offers us. If we do not have a purpose of amendment to change our lives, conversion, we are not well disposed to receive this sacrament, to receive God's mercy, if we're not converted to the one only God. Each of Christ's faithful all the baptized, are bound to confess in kind and in number what sort of sin and how many times did I do it. I told five lies. I stole two purses. I kicked my neighbor in the knee three times. Each of Christ's faithful are bound to confess in kind and in number all grave sins, all serious sins, all mortal sins, committed after baptism, of which after careful examination of conscience, and we'll have more later on examination of conscience, he or she is aware, which have not yet been directly pardoned by the keys of the church, and which have not been confessed in an individual confession. It is recommended that the Christian faithful confess also venial sins. This reference to the keys of the church remind us that the Lord Jesus Christ entrusted the keys to St. Peter, 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven, what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The power of the keys, the binding and the loosing, exercised in the sacrament of penance. And here we can see again Canon 988 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law, echoing in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which speaks to us about integral and individual confession. Here we see also the recommendation of the confession of venial sins. Not necessary, but salutary, praiseworthy, good for the soul. The Catechism of the Catholic Church continues in Article 1422, Those who approach the sacrament of penance and receive by mercy of God pardon for the offenses which they have done against him are in the same blow, at the same time, reconciled with the church which their sin has wounded and which, by charity, example, and prayer, works for their conversion. Here the Catechism of the Catholic Church is quoting the dogmatic constitution on the Church of the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, Article 11. The Church is wounded by our sins, but the Church, by a love for the sinner, we hate the sin, we love the sinner, by the example of the Church, especially the holy members of the Church, especially the saints, and by the prayer of the church, Lord, have mercy on us and on the whole world. The church works for the conversion of sinners. Sancta sed semper reformata, holy but always in need of reform. Holy because her founder is the all-holy God, Christ Jesus. And holy because of the saints who have repented their sins. The only difference between saints and sinners is repentance and the saints are repentant sinners. The Code of Canon Law, Canon 914, reads like this. It is the primary duty of parents and those who take their place, so guardians or what, as it is the duty of the parish priest, the pastor, to ensure that children who have reached the use of reason, normally about seven years of age, are properly prepared and having made their sacramental confession are nourished by the divine food of the Eucharist as soon as possible. It is also the duty of the parish priest, the pastor, to see that children who have not reached the use of reason, or whom he has judged to be insufficiently disposed, do not come to Holy Communion. So here it's not just an altar call, y'all come down. There has to be suitable preparation, suitable dispositions, can we discern the body of the Lord? Have we examined ourselves, lest we eat and drink condemnation unto ourselves? We see the collaborative ministry of the parents, the godparents, the, the pastor, and the children themselves. Canon 916 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law reads like this, Anyone who is conscious of grave sin may not celebrate Mass or receive the body of the Lord without having previously been to sacramental confession, unless there is a grave reason and there is no opportunity to confess. I know at Holy Ghost Catholic Church we have confessions for some hours every week, 5 o'clock even until the 7 o'clock Mass in Spanish and English, and before the 1.30 Mass in Latin, 1 to 1.30. But there's no priest worth his salt who would ever refuse to hear a confession. So... There is always an opportunity here to well confess. In the case of a person doing this, there's an obligation to make a perfect act of contrition, perfect sorrow, hatred for sin, for the motive of pure love of God. And part of a perfect 
act of contrition includes the resolve to go to confession as soon as possible. It's always possible, not just at Holy Ghost, but at any Catholic church. Some people say, oh, Vatican II, the council did away with the need to go to confession before communion. Well, here we see the Code of Canon Law, 1983, the Code of the Council, reminds us that a priest is not to celebrate the Mass if he's unconscious of grave sin. Or no one is to receive Holy Communion if they're in grave sin. Good for us to well confess. Good for us to well receive the Holy Communion. A little bit more on the three acts of the penitent, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Article 1451 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks to us about contrition. A sorrow of soul and a detestation of the sins committed with the resolution to sin no more in the future. That's only possible by God's grace. But God gives us the grace in his sacraments, in his church, according to his will. I detest my sins. That's sorrow. That's contrition. But it's not enough. I have to resolve with the help of God's grace to sin no more. Contrition is not enough, however. Then we have to manifest the depth of our sorrow. We confess. The confession of sins, this is Article 1455 from the Catechism, the admission of our sins, even in a simply human point of view, psychologically speaking, I suppose, frees us and facilitates our reconciliation with others. By admission, the penitent looks in the face of the sins of which he is guilty. He assumes his responsibility, and as such, he opens anew to God and to the communion of the church, so to make possible a new future. Reality therapy could be another way to speak of it, or tough love, if you prefer that way of speaking. Article 1456 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks of confession this way. Confession to a priest constitutes an essential part, that without which, like there's no baptism without water, there's no Eucharist without bread and wine, and a validly ordained priest. Confession to a priest, saying what we did, constitutes an essential part, a necessary part, of the sacrament of penance. The penitents must, in confession, enumerate all the mortal sins. What's a mortal sin? Something serious? We know it's serious, we do it anyway. The object, the intention, and the circumstances. But the serious thing, or the object, that's the trump. The best of intentions can't make a bad thing good. The penitents must, in confession, enumerate all the mortal sins which they are conscious of after a serious examination. What's a serious examination of conscience look like? We examine the commandments of God, the Big Ten, the love of God and the love of neighbor, that there is no God but God, and his name is holy, and his day is holy, to honor our father and our mother, to respect life, not to kill, to be pure of heart, not to covet our neighbor's wife or husband, and to not commit adultery or fornication, any of the sexual sins, to not covet our neighbor's goods or to steal our neighbor's goods, to be generous, to be diligent, to only say the good things people need to hear, not to bear false witness. That's one way of examining your conscience, looking at the Big Ten Commandments. Look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure of heart, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We can look at the works of mercy, corporal and spiritual, to bury the dead, to pray for the living and the dead, to instruct the ignorant, to rebuke the sinner. Have I been doing the works of mercy? That's part of an examination of conscience. After a serious examination of conscience, 
not a superficial, not a half-hearted examination of conscience. Even if the sins are very secret and have been committed only against the last two precepts of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, because many times these sins, coveting our neighbor's goods or our neighbor's wives, uh, wound the soul more grievously and are more dangerous than those which have been committed in the sight of all. Article 1456 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Sometimes those are more grievous because there's no one there to rebuke us except ourselves when we well examine our conscience. Then it's like a gnawing effect, like a, a rotting. Not only is there contrition, not only is there confession, but there's also satisfaction, the third act of the penitent. Many sins cause injury to our neighbor. Reparation, payback, must be made when possible. For example, restitution of stolen things, rehabilitation of the reputation of the one who was slandered, compensate for wounds. Simple justice demands such justice, the virtue to give each their due, and God has his due. But even more, sin wounds and weakens the sinner himself. So too, his relationship with God and with neighbor. Absolution takes away the sin, but she does not remedy all the disorders which sins have caused. Relieved of his sin, the sinner can again recover the fullness of spiritual holiness. He can therefore make whatever greater thing to repair his sins. He makes satisfaction in an appropriate manner or expiates his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance. That's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 1459. Christ the Lord, he has done enough to save us all by his death and resurrection. Glory be to him. But he's asked us to make up what lacks in his sufferings through St. Paul. And so we do whatever little task we're assigned as a further sign of our conversion, as a further sign of our renewed goodwill, as our commitment to be faithful followers of Christ, who died for our sins, which we acknowledge not only in our contrition, not only in our confession, but in our satisfaction. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states in Article 1854, it is good to appreciate or to recognize sins according to their gravity, the weight of the matter, the heaviness. This is again perceptible, discernible in the scriptures. See St. John's first letter, chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. The distinction between mortal and venial sins is imposed in the tradition of the church. The experience of men agrees. Not all sins are deadly. There are sins which are deadly. About these, I do not ask you to pray. St. John, inspired by God, and when we read that with faith and understand it, we believe it too. Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave infraction or transgression of the law of God. Mortal sin turns us away from God, preferring a lesser good over him who is our ultimate end and our beatitude, our blessedness. Venial sin, the less serious sins, allows charity, the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of self to subsist, to remain, even though venial sins are an offense, and they will. I recently heard a sad expression, death by a thousand cuts. If I tolerate venial sins in my life, little by little, I will be led to a, to a callousness, to a roughness, to a coarseness, which will accept 
worse and worse sins until such a time that I no longer even recognize sin as sin. And that's when I pave the path to hell by unrepentance, by freely embracing what is truly wicked. For a sin to be mortal, to be deadly, three conditions are required together. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 1957. A mortal sin is every sin which has for its object a grave matter, which is committed in full knowledge and deliberately done. So if it's nothing serious, it's not a mortal sin. If we don't know it's serious, it's not a mortal sin. The matter might be grave, but you've got to have all three of these together. And deliberately done. God forbid you crash your car into somebody, but did you intend to crash your car? That's not deliberate if it's an accident. Accidents are accidents. But if you see so-and-so in the crosswalk and you rev up the engine, woe to you. Now this piece about committed in full knowledge reminds us of the importance in formation of our conscience. Do we recognize what is truly good? By and large, once we reach the age of seven, we know right from wrong, good from evil. And those who are responsible with our education, with our formation, are there to help us. But we can never shirk our own responsibility, the own important role we have of making sure our conscience is rightly formed. We form our conscience by gazing upon Christ the Lord, crucified for our sins. We form our conscience as well by studying sacred scripture, the inspired word of God. We form our conscience as well by heeding the sure and certain teachings of Mother Church regarding matters of faith and morals, what I am to believe, what good I am to do, and what evil I am to avoid, deliberately done, committed in full knowledge, grave matter. How do we know what's grave matter? The Catechism of the Catholic Church presents that for our advice as well. Article 1858, grave matter is made precise, or spelled out if you like, by the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. No blasphemy. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. We'll have so many programs going line by line through the great Ten Commandments, which are summarized by the Lord himself, the twofold, love of God and love of neighbor. Of course, we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, so there's a proper love of self, not a selfishness. But when I keep the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, not only do I not kill the other guy, I don't let him kill me, and I don't kill myself. When I eat well, it's to guard my health. I eat my breakfast, so I will be able to have the strength to work, or the strength to pray, or the strength to help another. So many future programs will go over the sacraments of holy orders, holy marriage, the anointing of the sick. We'll have future programs on the Ten Commandments of God and the Lord's Prayer. All of these together, organically united with the Creed, our belief in God the Father Almighty, our belief in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our belief in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the Giver of life. All of these things together 
resound in our nature, the natural virtue of religion, but they are also supernatural realities. For by nature we can know that God exists. But it takes supernatural faith to know that God exists as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It takes supernatural faith to recognize that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, yet like us in all things but sin. Having received our human nature from Mary, ever virgin, his blessed mother and ours, whom he entrusted to us at the foot of the cross, behold your mother, behold your son. And it was from that day forth that St. John, representing all of us, took Mary to himself, to his own home, to safeguard her, and the disciples have been with her ever since. She was with Mother Church in the upper room when the descent of the Holy Spirit occurred at Pentecost, patronal feast of our church here at Holy Ghost. But Our Lady's work did not stop in the upper room. She is not only the Mother of God, but she is the Mother of the Church. We celebrate each December her feast day, the Immaculate Conception, December 8th. This anticipates her birthday in the fall, September 8th, nine months between her conception, celebrated in December, and her birth, celebrated in September. We also have another special feast of Our Lady in December, the 12th of December, Our Lady of Guadalupe. This is the patronal feast of the Church in Mexico, even as Our Lady's Immaculate Conception is celebrated as the patronal feast of the Church in the United States of America. In the year 1531, to the Indian Juan Diego, whose last name translates as Speaking Eagle, the Virgin Mary appeared, giving her own image onto his cloak, his tilma, mysteriously in fibers made of agave, the cactus, which normally lasts about 30, 60 years, and almost 500 years later, the image still remains. Scientists unable to explain, the hemisphere was converted by God's grace, by this powerful sign. And what Mary said in Cana, do whatever he tells you, referring to the Lord Jesus, she spoke again, mystically, mysteriously, to this native of the western hemisphere, and a nation was converted. From human sacrifice to the one only sacrifice of Christ, his death and resurrection made present in the sacrament of the altar, that the forgiveness of sins might be realized. So often Catholic people honor the Mother of God by praying, by meditating with her on the mysteries of the Lord, on his conception and birth, on his suffering and death, on his glorious resurrection and ascension. Pope John Paul II, who had a great love for the Mother of God, even had his focus on some aspects of his public ministry, the public ministry of the Lord, in what are called the Mysteries of Light. In our few remaining moments this afternoon, I'd like to just briefly go over some of the mysteries of Our Lady's Rosary. The first joyful mystery is the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel spoke to the Blessed Mother, Will you be the Mother of God? Yes. Let it be done to me according to thy word. And the fruit of this mystery is humility, accepting the plan of God in our lives. The second joyful mystery is the visitation when Our Lady, when the Virgin Mary went to go visit St. Elizabeth, her kinswoman, who was heavy with child, and the babe leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. The fathers of the church will say, Womb to womb the message went, and Mary proclaimed the greatness of the Lord. 
a prayer which the church makes her own each evening in Vespers. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. All generations will call me blessed, including our own. The third joyful mystery is the birth of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David, King of Israel. We pray for simplicity, for humility, for poverty. Here the King of heaven, the maker of all that is seen and unseen, born in a stable, surrounded by the beasts. The fourth joyful mystery is the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple in obedience to the law given by God to Moses. We should be no less obedient than Mary and Joseph. And the fifth joyful mystery of the Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary is the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, speaking with the doctors of the law. Did you not know that I need needed to be about my father's business. We pray for piety, that we might always be about the business of our Father who is in heaven. And the Lord Jesus went down to Nazareth and was obedient to them. The luminous mysteries, the new ones Pope John Paul II gave to us before he went to his eternal reward, are the baptism of the Lord in the Jordan, and we pray for a devotion to that sacrament, and gratitude for our own, and zeal in bringing others to those same saving waters. The first miracle of the Lord, the wedding at Cana, we pray for those who are married, those who are preparing for marriage, those who are struggling in their marriage. We pray for the renewal of this great sacrament. The third mystery of light is the proclamation of the kingdom and the call to conversion. The more and more each of us are converted to the Lord, the better will grow his kingdom, will be citizens of his kingdom, will spread his reign, ready for his return in glory. The fourth mystery of light is the transfiguration, when our Lord was high up Mount Tabor with his best friends Peter, James, and John, and the glory of the Lord shone through as he spoke with Moses and Elijah. Here we have the Old and the New Testaments symbolized by those friends of the Lord, for all the scripture is about the Lord, and he reveals not only God to us, the mystery of the Trinity, but us to ourselves. We pray that his grace at work in us might shine through us. And the fifth and final mystery of light is the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper as a perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross. So we pray that we are a Eucharistic people, a people who are worshiping in spirit and truth that we well receive and venerate the body and blood of the Lord present in the sacrament of the altar. The first sorrowful mystery is the agony in the garden, and we meditate on sorrow for sin, realizing that our Lord sweat blood. So sorry was he for sins he had never even committed. The scourging of the pillar, we pray for purity. The crowning of thorns, we pray for moral courage, not mocking Christ's kingship, but honoring it, honoring his law, standing up for what is right. The carrying of the cross, we pray for patience, endurance. And the fifth and final sorrowful mystery is the crucifixion and death of the Lord. We pray for final perseverance, that we might be faithful to our last breath, to our last drop of blood. The first glorious mystery we celebrate, especially at Easter, the resurrection of the Lord. On the third day he rose again. We pray for faith. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain, but he has been raised and we worship him. We live and move and have our being in him. The second glorious mystery is the ascension of the Lord. We pray for hope. We long for heaven for ourselves and our beloved dead. The third glorious mystery of the rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary is the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles in the upper room on the 50th day. 
It's the Patronal Feast, the Patronal Mystery of Holy Ghost Catholic Church here in Knoxville. We pray for a great love for God. The fourth glorious mystery is the Assumption of Our Lady Body and Soul into Heaven, which we celebrate each August 15th in a special way. We pray for the grace of a happy death. Mary was ready to see the good God face to face. We pray for the grace of a happy death for ourselves and our beloved, all who will die this day. The fifth and final glorious mystery of the Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary is her coronation as Queen of Heaven and Earth. Here, our chapter 12 of the Book of Revelation, a great sign appearing in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, a crown of twelve stars on her head, standing on the moon. This mystery calls to mind a need we have to be devoted to the Mother of God. Even our Lord kept the fourth commandment, and he gives us the grace to do the same. Until next time, God bless you.